Henry K. Henry K. Productions. Because righteousness governed the world. Broadcasting live and direct from the rolling red hills on the outskirts of Kingston, Jamaica. From a magical place at the intersection of words, sound, and power. The red light is on. Your dial is set. The frequency in tune to the Rootsland podcast. Stories that are music to your ears. Yo, Henry. You're not going to tell the same story about culture right now again. No, tell me now. That's what a Jamaican sounds like when he's heard the same story too many times. But unfortunately for Carson, Brian from Colorado is on the line. And he hadn't heard anything yet. As I told him about my adventure, Brian hung on every word. He kept interrupting, asking me to elaborate on details that I hadn't even paid attention to. Basie's last name? Did Joseph mention if he was coming to Colorado? The name of the song the band was recording? And music finished as no music is ever finished. As a fellow fan, Brian loved it. Oh, boss, that sounds awesome, man. What a Ross Clot day. Yeah, the energy and the excitement in your voice, man. The way you describe how the music makes you feel, there's there's a word for that. It's it's happiness. I mean, I, I know you're planning on going to law school and becoming a lawyer, but you owe it to yourself to consider staying in the music business, man. Dude, you already got your foot in the door, and you're learning from Dr. Dredd. He's one of the best in the business. Brian believed there were very few people in life who found something they were passionate about, and even fewer who had a chance to spend their life doing it. His advice to me, follow my dream. My advice is go to Jamaica. You know, the factory, the place where the music is made. Get your hands dirty, greasy, grimy in the industry, man. See what Jaw has in store for you. Then you can decide for yourself. Before hanging up, Brian mentioned he may not be calling back for a while. Henry, listen, I'm gonna be heading out of town, so I won't be calling Ross Records anymore. I'm sure we're gonna cross paths again somewhere. Sometime. Brian was right about both. He never did call Ross Records again. And our paths did cross. Hey, Carson, what do you think about me heading down to Kingston to work? No, brother, Kingston dangerous, brother. No, man, I know you're in the woods that. Me no advise that. No way, shape, or farm, brother. You wouldn't last a millisecond. Yeah, I'm sure my mom will feel the same way. Oh, Henry, don't make me crazy. As it turned out, Dr. Dredd hired me to work part-time after my internship. So since I was now getting paid, it was official. I was in the music business. As the semester went on, I started getting more responsibility at Ross. It made me more invested in my work. There was a constant flow of reggae stars passing through the office, live concerts, street festivals, and of course my favorite, getting a chance to see the group Israel Vibration record. Dr. Dredd, a big fan of the iconic group from the 70s, was reuniting them and producing their first album in years. In a story that I would pitch as a Grimm's fairy tale meets a Charles Dickens novel, the members of Israel Vibration, Apple, Scully, and Wiss, were all stricken with polio when they were young and met at a rehab hospital in Kingston. In the 40s and 50s, the epidemic was prevalent in Jamaica especially in poor rural areas where the virus was spread through contaminated drinking water. With no money or resources to provide help for the crippling disease, the young boys were sent by their families to live at Mona Rehab Center in Kingston. 
alone, and scared, the children were subject to abuse and cruel primitive treatments that were common at the time. As the boys bonded over their shared suffering and searched for meaning in their lives, a Rastafarian elder named Baba Daus, a deeply spiritual man, showed them how to channel their pain and hardships into love and acceptance. However, after they embraced Rastafari and started growing their dreadlocks, they were kicked out of the home and eventually settled in an isolated area outside of Kingston. For years, they scraped by busking on the streets, earning a meager living but a loyal following, never giving up their faith, drawing on their strength acquired from difficult childhoods. Israel Vibration kept singing and kept praying until one day, miraculously, the stars aligned and they're overheard practicing by a passerby walking in the woods. He is so moved by their voices and story that he raises the money to finance their first album. The group went on to achieve international acclaim for their haunting three-part harmonies and catchy conscious lyrics. But it's their determination to endure and overcome their physical challenges and their ability to spread a message of love and hope in spite of their tribulation that makes them so inspirational. Israel Vibration sat in the control room and listened to the rhythm as they rehearsed the song. Each member knew exactly the time and space to place their vocals. It was almost a psychic connection, a connection made over a lifetime. There was no need to even speak to each other. They took their cues by looks or occasionally nodding. I watched as they awkwardly hobbled into the vocal booth on canes and double crutches their arms struggling to carry the weight of their bodies. But when they started singing, they appeared weightless. And I started floating. I will walk alone by the black water river. Sing me a song of my own. Sing me a song. I will walk alone by the black water river. As graduation approached, I started thinking more seriously about Brian's advice about going to Kingston. I mean, was it feasible? Where would I even begin? Then one afternoon, the answer appeared before my eyes. Literally, right in front of my eyes. The shipping table where Carson and I packed the boxes faced a large wall I must have stared out a thousand times. It had posters, headshots of singers, business cards, and in the center, a faded cardboard calendar. The kind that had all 12 months crammed at the bottom, with dates so small you need a magnifying glass to read. The top half of the calendar had a collage of photos. There was a picture of a record pressing plant, a recording studio, an office scene, and then a wall with a mural of Bob Marley. The top of the calendar read Tough Gong Music, 220 Marcus Garvey Drive, Kingston, Jamaica. Robert Nesta Marley, the undisputed king of reggae, visionary, prophet, voice of the oppressed, a man who inspired dreams all over the world. But what was Bob Marley's dream? In two words, Tough Gong. You see, Bob Marley didn't just sing about self-reliance and self-determination. He lived it. Here he is in an interview. What do you think it is that has made Bob Marley such a big name? I think, you know, maybe it's just what Bob Marley stands for. What is that? The truth. And 
and determination to stay alive and survive. You know. Bob Marley had a sharp business mind, and he learned early from Jamaica's top producers that record labels had all the power. The artists were expendable. Thirty years before Prince wrote the word "slave" on his face to protest the industry's abuse of artists, Bob Marley sang the words: "Slave driver, the tables are turned. Catch a fire, so you can get burned." The Whalers opened up Tough Gong Records in the '60s in downtown Kingston as a means to distribute their music directly to the people. Later on, Bob would move uptown to 56 Hope Road. In a quiet residential neighborhood in Kingston, there he would begin to build the dream Tough Gong Recording Studio. You have a record company now. Yeah. Why? Oh, you know, a long time we always have a record company. What we have now is a recording studio. When we go into the studio to work, it was a lot of hassle. I mean, we are Rasta, you know. Some people don't want a Rasta in them studio. When Marley became a Rastafarian. He, like many, experienced prejudice from Jamaica's conservative Christian population. Rastas were looked at as dirty dreads and blasphemers. Sometimes they were taken from their beds in the middle of the night and had their dreadlocks clipped with knives and scissors. Them things come through sabotage and through pressure. If everything was nice, maybe we wouldn't have to be in a studio. But it's not everyone have that humanitarian feeling. In 1981, after his death, his widow Rita purchased the former Federal Records Complex at 220 Marcus Garvey Drive, and it became the new home for Tough Gong. Bob Marley did not live to witness his dream fully realized, but like many visionaries, he had seen it long before he died. Tough Gong Music was now a top-of-the-line recording studio, record pressing plant, wholesale music distribution company, and one of Bob Marley's most enduring legacies. And after Dr. Dread spoke with Rita Marley, it was where I'd be working for the next four months. Mrs. Marley offered to pay my plane ticket and meals. All I had to do was cover my hotel. Just one more hurdle: my parents. Oh, Henry! Oh, Henry! When I was 11 years old, I overheard my mother planning my birthday party. It was going to be on a Monday. And I was upset and started arguing that I didn't want my birthday on a school day. She calmed me down. Henry, your birthday's on a holiday. You can have a party. It's Martin Luther King's birthday. He was a very special man. I asked why he was so special that he had a holiday. Because he had a dream, and his dream changed the world. And when you grow up, you can do the same thing. That year, when I opened my gifts at the bowling party at Woodmere Lanes, I got everything I asked for. The action GI Joe and the Rawlings baseball mitt. But when I got home, there was a small package gift wrapped on my bed. When I opened it up, it was a book, the biography of Dr. Martin Luther King. My parents didn't only teach me how to dream; they gave me the handbook. So I know they weren't going to say no, but I still wanted their blessing. You see, they just paid for me to get a degree in justice, with the understanding that I would be going to law school, becoming a lawyer. And eventually, paying them back. Now it was time to put my newly acquired skills to work and argue my case for putting law school on hold, and accept an offer from Rita Marley, Bob's widow, to work in Kingston, a city where I didn't know anyone and had never been, 
and had one of the highest murder rates in the world. And by the way, I would be skipping my graduation ceremony and needed to borrow a thousand bucks for hotel and expenses. Okay, so the argument had some holes, but I still had some time to work it out. Oh, Henry, don't make me crazy. It's very dangerous in Kingston. My mom looked at me. I can see she was scared. Do you even have a place to stay there? Are you going to be safe? Yes, I nodded and explained the situation. Okay, promise me one thing. When you get the chance, make beautiful music. I am on my merry way to Zion. On behalf of your Kingston-based flight crew, welcome to Norman Manley Airport. The local time is now 11.15 a.m. Current temperature is 96 degrees Fahrenheit. Please keep your seatbelts fastened until we come to a complete stop. Enjoy your trip, and we hope every little thing is going to be all right. Me too. I was also hoping every little thing was going to be all right. But before I left for Kingston, I heard there was a bitter war being fought for Bob Marley's estate and his entire legacy, including Tough Gun was in the balance. The Marley song that more reflected what was happening was So Much Trouble in the World. So much trouble in the world. I stepped out of the airport and into chaos, swarmed by taxi drivers from all directions, reaching to grab my luggage and claim rights to my ride. But I held on tight, and when I told them I had a driver, they backed off. Carson warned me this would happen and that most of them were scammers. He told me to look out for a clearly marked taxi. And not far away was a beat-up black and orange car with checker cab painted on the door. The condition looked suspect, but it was definitely a taxi. There was a driver leaning up against the car, holding a magazine and a pencil. He seemed preoccupied in a game of word search. Excuse me, are you working? Excuse me, sir. Yeah, I'm on. If you're busy right now, I don't want to bother you. I'm working. Stepping out of the car. Where I go? How should I say where you're going? I'm going to Tough Gong Music on Marcus Garvey Drive. Tough Gong? He's a musician. Well, I'm trying to get into the music business. Nice, nice. We packed up the bags and I jumped in the passenger seat. Nice to meet you. I'm Brother Nelson. Nice to meet you too, Brother Nelson. I'm Brother Henry. I had traveled to Jamaica before in college, for spring break, to the tourist-lined beaches and rustic boutique hotels of the North Coast. It didn't take me long to realize this wasn't the North Coast. On the way to Tough Gong, Brother Nelson weaved his way through the pothole-filled back roads and narrow lanes to avoid the traffic. His taxi had no AC, so we rode with the windows open. The warm harbor air near the airport soon gave way to the heavy smell of gas and exhaust as we got closer to town. This seemed more like Mogadishu than Montego Bay. The dense city streets were lined with tattered board houses. They had zinc panels randomly placed as roofing. Idle teens hung around outside neighborhood shops and gave menacing looks as we drove by. Sure, don't mind them, Brother Henry. They don't mean anything. They don't use the tourists around here, you know? That's okay. Don't mind them. But I'm not a tourist. I work here. Brother Nelson was a devout Christian, a hard-working family man with an infectious laugh. He loved his work, but it was getting more dangerous every day. 
Kingston is a dangerous place, brother Henry. The gunmen are even starting to come after the taxi men. You have to watch yourself. Making our way through some of Kingston's most depressed neighborhoods, I couldn't help noticing the lush hills surrounding the city. From every vantage point down below, you can make out the sprawling designer homes and large villas that dotted the hillside. Kingston felt like a city of extremes. There was a noticeable tension in the air. It gave off an us-versus-them kind of vibe. By the looks of it, I was them. Brother Henry, make sure you hold on to the door tight when we turn. The thing doesn't lock so well at all. It don't lock well. Okay, thank you, Brother Nelson. If there's any other part of the car that may fly off on the way, you can tell me now. Twenty minutes into the ride, the area took on a more industrial feel. I recognized Tough Gong by the Bob Marley mural, painted on the wall featured on their calendar. What they cropped out of the photo? An imposing metal fence with security guard posted in a booth out front. Brother Nelson opened the trunk. I took out my duffel bag, a boombox, and guitar. I paid him in U.S. cash, which delighted him, but also stirred up the curiosity of a small group gathered out front of the gate. He gave me a business card with no phone number. Thank you, I remember. Card number 115. Checker cab, number 115. When he drove off, I was approached by the teens that were hanging out front. A collection of upcoming singers and rappers who spent their days camped outside the recording studio, hoping to get that big break and get in the door. When I told them I couldn't help, they asked for some lunch money. The security guard stepped out of the booth and started banging a wooden club against the fence. It caused a loud clang. Yo, yo! It's okay. They weren't bothering me, just asking some questions. Yes, sir. How can I help you? Hello, my name is Henry. Mrs. Hilton is expecting me. I'm supposed to start work here today. The telephone in the booth is broken, so I'll go check Mrs. Hilton for you. Soon come. Soon come. Every tourist remembers that phrase from their Jamaican vacation. It usually means between five minutes and never. One of the youth must have overheard me talking, because when security walked away, the auditions began, and lyrics started to fly. Guys, guys, listen, I wish I could help. At this point, I'm just like you. Not like us. I'm also trying to get in the door. No, boss, you're not like we, you're white. And then, as if on cue, the gate opened up. All right, Mr. Henry, you can come in. The security guard pointed me over to the office. By then I was soaking wet and happy to get inside and feel the AC. It certainly wasn't blasting cold, but cool enough to be comfortable. I was greeted by a tall, elegant woman, dressed very conservatively. She had a very pleasant and professional demeanor. Hi Henry, lovely to finally meet you. I'm Mrs. Hilton. We spoke on the phone. Nice to meet you too, Mrs. Hilton. Mr. Anderson is not in office as yet, but I'll give you a meal ticket. Feel free to go by the commissary. Thank you. And have some lunch until he gets here. Okay? Okay, I will. Thank you very much. Mr. Anderson was the new A&R director at Tough Gong. He was the one instrumental in making all this happen. He convinced Mrs. Marley that having someone who worked at Ross and understood the U.S. market could help out at Tough Gong. I put down my bags near her desk and sat in a small waiting area outside his office. A gentleman in his mid-fifties was sitting in the chair across from me. He sat upright, perfect posture, like a soldier at attention. Square-jawed and clean-shaven, 
he stared straight ahead, deep in thought, oblivious to my presence. Wearing a baseball cap, freshly ironed a green golf shirt, and a pair of beige pants. What I noticed most? A saxophone case with a Bob Marley sticker sitting on his lap. His hands were neatly folded on top. Hello, excuse me, are you a musician? It's a pleasure to meet you, sir. My name is Headley Bennett. They call me Deadly Headley. That is my musical name. Deadly Headley Bennett. I remember hearing his name for the first time from Tim at Ross Records. Not only did he think that Deadly Headley had the coolest name in all of reggae, which he did, but Tim felt that Deadly had the sweetest sounding tenor sax. Headley was one of the music's unsung heroes, responsible for perfecting reggae's trademark sound. He had composed and played on hundreds, if not thousands of songs over the decades. This was truly an honor, so I invited him for lunch. We walked over to the Tough Gong Cafeteria. They served baked chicken that melted off the bone, and Jamaican-style rice and peas, which I love, flavored with fresh coconut milk. But what I really feasted on was Hedley Bennett's extraordinary tale about going from a shoeless five-year-old begging to learn music to performing for princesses and presidents. Deadly Headley's story is basically the story of reggae, an evolutionary musical journey that begins with an island whose main inhabitants are the descendants of West African slaves. Stolen from their homeland, stripped of their identities, the only thing they had to connect them to their history was their music, the lifeblood that sustained them. Forced by their owners to learn European folk songs on guitars and banjos, they eventually incorporated these Western instruments with their own African rhythms. The result? A music unique to Jamaica, called Mento. Lighthearted songs with lyrics of simple country life. It was music that gave small moments of joy and happiness to an oppressed people. And like most Jamaican children, Headley's first musical experience was having these traditional songs sung to him as a child. Except Deadly Headley wasn't like most Jamaican children. He was one of the fortunate few given a chance to break the cycle of poverty. A rare opportunity for an elite education that would change his life forever. You see, when I noticed Headley's demeanor reminded me of a soldier, it's because he was. A soldier in reggae's army. And not just any soldier, special forces. He was given the name Deadly because he was a musical assassin. Skills he learned in one of the most unlikely places, inspired by a higher calling. The Alpha Boys School in East Kingston is to Jamaican musicians what the Xavier Institute is to X-Men. Established by Roman Catholic nuns in the 1880s as a home for wayward boys, it was a refuge in a turbulent world where Kingston's troubled and impoverished youth could learn skills that would prepare them for life. Early on, it formed a brass band with instruments donated by the Catholic Church. In 1939, the music program was taken over by the beloved Sister Mary Ignatius Davis, a badass Roman Catholic nun with love for jazz and blues and mad turntable skills. She displayed every Saturday afternoon when she spun records for her sound system on the Alpha property. For over half a century, 
this unassuming Sister of Mercy took the poor, helpless, and destitute children that entered Alpha and transformed them into international music superstars at a rate and quality like no other music program in the world. Her students included renowned jazz musicians, billboard-charting singers, and musical pioneers as diverse as King Yellow Man, the slack-talking dancehall sensation, to Leslie Wilson, the first black conductor for the London Symphony. Through a combination of tough love, meticulous military-style discipline, and sheer belief in her students, Sister Ignatius transformed their lives. And as the Alpha Boys entered the world, they transformed music. Her most important and enduring lesson? There was no limit to their talent. They didn't have to play other people's music. They could make their own. So they did. Since 1959, the West End of Kingston, Jamaica, has throbbed with a musical beat. A hypnotic sound of surging excitement and power. People hearing it became caught up in a frenzy and couldn't help moving to this religious beat. Headley and his fellow alumni were responsible for shaping the sound of a new genre. It was called ska, and it took the world by storm. The first of many styles that would permanently put Jamaican music on the international stage and pop charts. In 1962, Jamaica achieves independence from England. Upon her arrival in Kingston for the ceremony, Princess Margaret is serenaded at the airport by none other than Deadly Headley. That same year, his sweet tenor sax is immortalized on two songs that will go down in history. Hurricane Hattie is the first hit by a 14-year-old sensation named Jimmy Cliff, and Judge Not is the first recording for a newcomer named Bob Marley. Headley composed and performed on many of reggae's biggest hits, including Billboard charting titles. However, like many of his peers, he signed shady one-sided deals that took advantage of his youth and trust. He explained that there may have been some legal recourse, but for a humble session musician, it was just too costly to hire lawyers to fight. Deadly was indeed a soldier. He never owned a house. I don't even think he owned a car. But the joy he received from playing his sax was only equaled by the joy he gave from playing his sax. Walking back to the office with Headley was when I first discovered that Keith Anderson, the A&R director for Tough Gong that I'd be working with, was better known by his professional name, Bob Andy, one of the most revered and respected singer-songwriters in Jamaican music. I had only discovered his music a short time back. Brian from Colorado knew that I had dreams of being a songwriter, One day he asked me who I thought was a better writer, Bob Marley or Bob Andy. I told him, I never heard of Bob Andy. No way, Henry. You mean you want to be a songwriter and you never heard of Bob Andy? Not disrespect, but that's pathetic. You better take your paycheck this week from Dr. Dre and buy everything Ross has in stock, especially Bob Andy's songbook. That's the gold standard for songwriting. I did buy everything we had in stock. And Brian was right. Bob Andy's writing was the gold standard. In fact, later that semester, my final paper for contemporary issues in American policing was titled Fire Burning, after a Bob Andy song. It was the late 80s, and music, especially rap, was in the spotlight, being accused of inciting violence through provocative lyrics. My paper argued the violence was a result of the frustration with long-term inequality 
especially in the communities where a lot of these artists grew up. These lyrics weren't inciting violence. They were predicting it. It was a wake-up call. I ended the paper with a quote from the Bob Andy song. I can see the fire spreading. It's getting hotter than hot. The haves will want to be in the shoes of the have-nots. If the sign is on your door, you will be saved for sure. But if you are in pretense, you're on the wrong side of the fence. Fire burning, burning, burning. I see the fire burning. I got an A on the paper and received my degree in justice. But as I walked into Bob Andy's office, I had the feeling my education was just getting started. Rootsland Podcast is produced by Eric in association with Vicebox Studios. Make sure that they click the link below, you know. Make sure you click the link below. Like, share, and subscribe. So join the Roots Gang and Rootsland. Yes, Rasta. <laughs> I tell you, I tell you. Don't worry about a thing, cause every little thing is going to be alright. Henry K. Production.